Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. I'm Jesse Thorne. It's Bullseye. Ed Helms got his start as a correspondent on The Daily Show with Jon Stewart. During his run there, he also booked a gig on a little show called The Office. For seven seasons, he played the awkward but lovable Andy Bernard, an insecure Dunder Mifflin paper salesman prone to occasional rage and, of course, to acapella singing. Is that you singing? All four parts. Recorded on my computer. Wow. Took me forever. Nice job. Thank you much, Lee. His breakout movie role was The Hangover. You know The Hangover, probably. A group of guys take a trip to Las Vegas for a wild bachelor party. They wake up with a hangover and no memory of what had happened the night before, as they stumble around Vegas trying to piece together the details. The movie was a smash hit. It spawned two sequels, which were also big hits. The franchise turned Ed Helms into what Hollywood insiders like me like to call a movie star. Sorry if that's too jargony. His latest role is in Netflix's Coffee and Kareem. It's an action comedy with a bit of a sweet side. In it, he portrays a Detroit police officer named James Coffey. Coffey isn't particularly good at his job. He doesn't get a lot of respect at the precinct. In fact, as the movie starts, he just accidentally lost a big-time criminal. But then he's thrust into action. Coffey has to rescue his girlfriend and her 12-year-old son, named Kareem, after the boy witnesses a murder. Let's listen to a clip from the film. Here, Coffee is talking with Kareem. They're alone for the first time. Kareem isn't thrilled his mom is dating a police officer, and Coffee knows that, but he's still trying to bond with him. So he decides to open up with Kareem about his childhood. I just want to say I know how weird this is, you know? My dad wasn't around either, and when my mom dated guys, I, I saw it as a threat. But there was one guy that... Uh, I just decided, hey, I'm going to give this guy a chance. And I did. And we became BFFs. Best friends friends forever. forever. And guess who he is now? Who? My stepdad. (laughs) Yeah. So the moral of the story is that sometimes a stepdad is a step in the right direction. You were BFFs with a grown man? That's so sick and There's literally documentaries on Netflix about why that's so sick and up. I think that's a different... You expect us to be BF out of my face, man. Ed Helms, welcome to Bullseye. It's great to have you back on the show. It is wonderful to be here. Thank you. Did you ever imagine yourself as a star of a, playing a policeman in an action comedy? It's the only thing I ever imagined as an actor. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, it's funny. I don't see this as... I mean, it is obviously a cop. Like It's, a, it's sort of a buddy cop comedy, but... I, I just think of it as a comedy, you know, and it, it feels like kind of in keeping this character feels a little bit in keeping with with what I do. So, yeah, it just felt like a no brainer. How, how would you describe what you do? I would describe what I do as the art of acting perfected. Uh, is that fair? 
<laughs> yeah, no, I've thought of you, always thought of you as like a latter-day Uta Hagen type figure. <laughs> okay. Um, no, I, uh, uh, <laughs> I guess I do, I, I just like to do comedies uh, in which I play characters that might, might seem kind of low status, but they're, they're working on themselves and trying to be better people and maybe by the end are, have established uh, some measure of, of status, if not exactly high status. And that's, that is kind of, to me, a li- little bit of my life story or how I view it anyway. And that's, uh, that's why I, I love these characters that are just trying to do better out there. Did you think of yourself as low status and working on yourself? I certainly feel a certain amount of insecurity and in just moving through the world. And I don't know that it, it comes off all that often, but, uh, but it's there. And, and, and that's why a lot of these characters are maybe like a heightened version of that, right? They're, they're, they're much more sort of transparently struggling, struggling. Um, I'm much better at hiding my struggles, I guess. Uh, but, uh, but this is a guy who, you know, my character in this movie is definitely has some work to do. You grew up in Atlanta. Did you imagine yourself having an acting career when you were a kid? I don't know that it felt very plausible to me for a long, long time, but it certainly was a, was a, uh, an aspiration very early. I, I mean, I can really kind of pinpoint and, and this, this is something I think I share with so many comedic actors, but, but early on it was, it was Saturday night live. And just those things that those episodes that I would sneak downstairs to watch when I was eight, nine, 10 years old, and sometimes at a sleepover, you know, staying up late to watch and the, just Eddie Murphy and Joe Piscopo and Phil Hartman. And, and then later on Mike Myers and Chris Farley and Spade and Sandler and all, all these just wonderful, wonder, incredible comedic actors that, that were just throwing themselves into these ridiculous, crazy skits and clearly having a blast doing it. That was something that I, I, I don't even think I understood all the jokes at that age, but I understood how much fun these people were having and, and I wanted to be a part of it. And it just is something that stuck with me for forever and still is with me still is a big kind of motivating factor. Was that something that you shared with your family or was it something where you like uh, went downstairs by yourself on Saturday nights? Well, that's a really great question. I never shared that aspiration with, with very many people at all. And I think it's because in the culture in which I grew up, it just was not something that seemed reasonable or practical or even possible to go after. So I knew that if I talked about it and if I talked about how much I wanted to be on Saturday Night Live when I grew up, that I would never get good feedback. I would never get sort of affirmation of that aspiration. And so really for and on into adulthood and that that kind of Weirdly, the privacy of that 
goal, I think, kept it sacred to me in a really good way. And it kept it something that, you know, I, I was always some somebody who felt like I didn't want to tell people what I wanted to do. I just wanted to to show them once I had done it. The weird thing is that once you tell people your goals and aspirations, it's one thing if you're like a manager and you're trying to run a team of people, you have to talk about goals. But if you're one person and you're talking about your personal goals, the minute you share that with other people, you're kind of giving them an expectation, right? You're sort of saying to that person, here's what to expect from me. And then you're and, and, and if it's a really outlandish aspiration, like joining the cast of Saturday Night Live uh, after, you know, growing up a thousand miles from show business in Atlanta, Georgia, then you're you're kind of setting yourself up to disappoint that person in a weird way. They're likely to disappoint them or you're, at least you're opening the door to the possibility of disappointing that person. And I was always very precious about that. I don't know why. And I don't, I never thought it through this rationally at the time. I just always felt like this was a kind of secret private thing. And then once I got to New York in my twenties, that's when I was able to say, oh yeah, I'm in New York to do comedy and I could sort of own it. And then I had to kind of cross that next threshold of actually inviting my family <laughs> to, to come see me do stand up comedy. And that's, I think a huge a huge bar for most uh, most comedians to cross. That that's when I felt like okay, it's it's real. This is official. Like my parents, my family knows. They've come. They've seen me bomb. They know what I'm up to. I guess I'm legit. Did you go to New York specifically with the idea of wanting to do comedy? Yes, I had kind of two two tracks in mind. One, I wanted to because I studied film in college, and I was very enamored with like the Sundance film festival and independent filmmaking and all that. So New York city was a big hub for that at the time. And, and I thought, okay, I'm either going to sort of crack my way into the independent film world and maybe be a filmmaker or, and, or I just want to do comedy and comedy won out. (laughs) It was, it was the thing I found myself drawn to the, the, the most. But they were both equally ridiculous. (laughs) How did you know about the Upright Citizens Brigade Theater? So that started in, um, I moved to New York City in 96, I guess. And the Upright Citizens Brigade, and I started doing comedy stuff pretty much right away. I was going to open mic stand-up nights and... I took some improv classes at a little theater on the Upper East Side called Chicago City Limits. It's weird. I, this was all in New York, but I took improv classes at Chicago City Limits, and I did stand-up at the Boston Comedy Club, so um, which was in the village. But uh, I think we found the hook for this interview, Ed. Did we? All right. Yeah, that's yeah. the headline. <laughs> <laughs> Helms, Helms admits unusual coincidence. <laughs> ironic city names of comedy institutions. But uh, around 1999, I think I just started hearing about it and I was doing, I was, I had a little sketch group that I was performing with and we would just see signs up for the upright citizens brigade performances at these different venues. And, 
I'm blanking on it. There was this little, it was like on the 10th floor of some office building. There was like a creative space and that where a lot of comedy shows were happening, like underground comedy shows. And, uh, and UCB was doing stuff there and they were starting to teach classes. And I, I just kind of got on my radar and I thought this sounds awesome. This sounds like something I want to be a part of. And I went to some shows and then signed up for classes and it was nuts. I mean, it was just the coolest. It was so many wild, weird, wonderful people, uh, a lot of misfits and a lot of really talented, eager, ambitious people. And it was another, another moment of just finding like-minded people that made me feel like this is possible. This is, this is something I can, I might be able to do. Was there something about what in particular you were doing there or was it the people that were different? What, what was the thing that made it feel like it was a, you know, it was a real thing that could really happen? Well, it was clear that th- there was, there was a kind of, um, intangible excitement about the Upright Citizens Brigade. And it's one of those things that happens when all of the participants know that they're part of something special, even if you can't articulate it. And even if the world doesn't know it yet, that that just sort of was this, this little bit of electricity that was kind of running through all of that. And, um, and it made it feel special. It made it feel really cool. And again, it wasn't very long before, um, well, it's actually right out of the gate that the Upright Citizens Brigade themselves, Matt, Ian, the other Matt, and Amy, uh, were all doing sketches on Conan O'Brien. So he was like, they were like his sort of repertory players for, um, for the, all the sketches on, on the Conan O'Brien show. So, and they were teaching the classes. So that was like a direct link to late night comedy. And it felt like, wow, uh, this is like, I'm, I'm really close to this now. And, um, and when you can start to see those pathways and see those pipelines and they're in your own orbit, that's when it starts to feel real and it starts to feel, um, possible. I just, I always encourage young people to just go, go to the place where you're in the orbit of people who are doing the thing you want to do. Had you had the feeling that you have from improv making music, you're a pretty committed musician and you're also like, you play a lot of music in the kind of, uh, folk and bluegrass world, which is very oriented towards kind of community feeling. Yeah. Well, I think there are a ton of parallels there. Bluegrass in particular uh, is a, is a music form that is similar to jazz only in that there is a canon of music that most players of that music know. They know you know, probably 50 of the same songs, if not more. And so you can sit down, I can sit down with, with another bluegrass player who I've never met and we can play, we can just start having fun together instantly, just playing songs that we both know. 
um, and I've had really fun conversations about this in the past with, uh, there's a bluegrass guitar player named Brian Sutton lives in Nashville and he's kind of widely regarded as just one of the best bluegrass and country guitar players out there. And improvisation is a big part of, of that music form as well. And we've had some really fun deep dive conversations, not going to lie, fueled by some whiskey, um, that, uh, just about the excitement of improvisation and and kind of being in the zone with other people and finding these grooves with people, both in, you know, in my case as a comedian and as a performer, as an actor, and in his case, as a, as a musician, um, and some of the parallels and some of the differences between those, uh, finding those zones, but it is, uh, there's no question that there's a, almost this, like this really joyful spirit that I think emerges when you lock in with somebody, whether it's an improv partner or, uh, or, a um, you know, somebody you're playing music with when you just lock in and there's nothing said or spoken about the thing that you're doing, but you both know exactly what it is. Or, and I say both, it could be three, four, five, six musicians all at once or improv actors all at once. Nobody's saying what it is that you're doing, but you all get it. And everybody's on the exact same page. And it's this, you know, you get in that flow state that behavioral psychologists talk about and it is incredible. Really, really, really amazing. We'll wrap up with Ed Helms in just a minute. Like a lot of us, Ed has been spending a lot of time at home. So how does he pass that time? The answer is after the break. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. We live in a culture that prizes action. But now, former Surgeon General Vivek Murthy says it's important to make space to just be. Simply spending five minutes just listening to the birds chirping or to the conversation around you. Solitude and ways to overcome loneliness on the next Hidden Brain from NPR. Hey, J. Keith. Hey, Helen. I hear you have a true-false quiz you want me to finish. I do. Here we begin. We host a trivia game show podcast on the Max Fun Network called Go Fact Yourself. True. Correct. The show is all about celebrity guests answering trivia questions about things J. Keith enjoys. False. We sometimes don't talk about baseball or cats. Thank God. It's questions about things they enjoy. Next, we bring on surprise experts every episode. True. Correct. Final question. It's just the two of us sitting alone with these guests. False. Correct. We have a live audience at the Angel City Brewery. See? You can hear Go Fact Yourself every first and third Friday of the month. And if you don't listen, you can go fact yourself. True. Welcome back to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is the comedian and actor Ed Helms. You've seen him in The Office, The Daily Show, and The Hangover movies. His newest film is called Coffee and Kareem. It's a buddy comedy that just hit Netflix. Were you surprised uh, when you became a movie star? I Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I still kind of, I still wake up sometimes. Uh, sometimes it kind of hits you in the face with, um, in some moment, somebody says something or something, and it still surprises me. Uh, on the other hand, it is something that I also started working towards since 
I was 18 or so. And, um, and so there, there's a, that there's a sense that I think this is what I wanted. I think this is what I was working towards. Um, but you just don't really know what it's going to be like until it's happening. And even when you're working towards it, it still feels like this impossible, far away thing. And even now that, I mean, you just said I'm a movie star. I don't know if I'm actually, uh, <laughs> you know, official, if I check all the boxes of whatever a movie star is, but, um, but there are times that I, you know, I still have mom- moments of deep doubt and am, am I, am I good? Am I contributing to the, to the greater cinematic universe in a meaningful way? Um, and you know, you don't always feel like a movie star, I guess. I think the reason that I ask you that particularly is you became a, you know, a, a household name to the extent that you are when you were in the hangover. And I remember going to see the hangover in a, in like a press screening, you know, but it was at a regular movie theater and it was also just an advance hype screening. So there was a lot of non-press people there. It was probably seven out of eight were just people who somebody handed free tickets on the sidewalk or whatever. And I was excited about it because you were in it and because Zach Galifianakis was in it. And I was a, I was a big fan of both of yours. And, you know, I knew, I, what can I say? I was a comedy nerd. I knew Bradley Cooper from wet, hot American summer, like most people. And I think that like one of the reasons that it was so successful as a film, like artistically is because of how, what fundamentally sweet performers you and and Zach are. Like, I I don't think anyone would ever be surprised at at Bradley Cooper being a successful movie star. He's gorgeous and funny and a great actor. You know what I mean? Like he, he was on a, he was on a rocket ship to space one way or the other, but um, the two of you, like I certainly never imagined Zach would star in a movie and you were so wonderful in the movie. I was like, gosh, I guess I should have just been imagining Ed Helms being in being the star of movies this whole time. Um, <laughs> well, how dare you not imagine me <laughs> st- starring in movies? Uh, <laughs> what, what were you thinking? <laughs> so I, but I also remember like walking out of that movie and people, the people around me were like, flipping out over it, like totally flipping out over it. Rarely have I walked out of a movie where people were so pumped about it, but also like some were like (laughs) toxic bros who really seem to be taking the wrong messages from the film. And I, I immediately was like, wow, what a weird, what a weird thing I have seen that has seen these like, wonderful alternative performers like Ed Helms and Zach Galifianakis, you know, uh, Galifianakis in particular, especially at the time, just was making the weirdest work in the world other than that film and, and was wonderful at it. Just, just totally great. And like, what a weird hair shirt (laughs) to be in a movie. And you're like, okay, so everybody in the movie was good. We did a good job. And I think it's a good movie. And also it's huge and exploding my career into the stratosphere, but also maybe like part of the people that like it are are, like it for weird reasons. (laughs) You know what I mean? Sure. 
that is and so it's such an odd way to become a, like if that was your fourth movie that 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 you were the star of you know yeah. well you know it's just one in a long string but when it's the thing that is in a way a big break what a strange situation to be in it's a special movie i think it's something it, it it what's unique about that movie is that it really allowed all different kinds of people to see themselves in it and to kind of, uh, mm-hmm. you know, to derive joy from it. And I, I'll never forget being in the lobby of a, of a motel or a hotel in Maryland or someplace like not long after it came out. And there was, there were a, there was a little bevy of older ladies, like, you know, in their sixties or seventies. And they were taught, they were, telling each other scenes from the hangover. This was maybe a month, a couple of weeks after it came out and they were telling each other scenes from the movie and laughing about it. And I couldn't believe it. I just couldn't believe that these, these like old ladies were just chuckling about this movie. And then the more I thought about it, the reason that that movie kind of has its cake and eats it too, is because it's a story of these, these guys being really decadent and debaucherous but then they get this sort of back door because they're also horrified by it, right? So mm-hmm. the next day, the, as they learn what they've done, which to like, you know, frat bros all over the country, they're just like, yeah, those guys are the best. They had a crazy night out. But then the grandmas see the next day when they're horrified by all the stuff that they did the night before. And they they find that charming. And so- the formula of that plot, I think, was a little bit of a magic trick because it gave everybody something to latch onto, and and I don't think those movies come along very often. I can't I can't believe how lucky I was to be a part of that one. When you unexpectedly became a, a movie star, did you have some like? Were you ready? Did you have some idea of what you wanted to do with that thing that had entered your life? I don't, I don't know. I don't, I don't know if I was ready. (laughs) I kind of like it to come back around again and just uh, (laughs) be able to have a little more fun and roll with it. It was, it was kind of an anxious transition for me. Um, And I, I, that, that's not, I think it is for a lot of people, but looking back, I do kind of wish I just rolled with it a little more, had a little more just fun and cut myself some more slack uh, but I think I was very preoccupied with doing it right, you know, being a good guy through all of it and and not losing touch with my roots and all, all those things that stars, whether they're sports stars or movie stars or whatever, get criticized for um, getting too big for themselves or getting, you know, uh, just losing touch and all that sort of stuff. I I, I was very adamant about kind of doing it right or something. And I, but I didn't even know what that meant. And I think it, it made it a little bit, I was a little bit hard on myself or it made it a little bit more. um, I just was sort of cutting a tougher path for myself for no reason. Um, You know, really, if you can just navigate any of this stuff with some measure of authenticity, then you win. That's all it takes. And there's so many, pressures and forces on you to, to kind of like 
either perform in some way or be a little bit different than maybe just to be inauthentic and to, to deliver on people's expectations of you and um, in, in a way that may not be organic to you or natural to you. And that's when you start to falter and is when you start trying to meet those expectations. Um, but I've been, I've been kind of in and out of all those modes and, and struggled with different aspects of it all. You know, I guess I'm still, still have some measure of common sense left. I'm cling, trying to cling to. I think we're all trying to cling to something right now, Ed. <laughs> You're doing a great job. <laughs> oh, thank you. Yeah, we are, aren't we? Just re- grasping for anything. Do you play music around the house? Have you been extra? Yes. Yes, all the time. All the time. I have guitars on different walls in the house that I can just grab at any given time. I don't play banjo around the house very much because that's, well, as you know, banjo is extremely irritating unless you're the person <laughs> playing it, <laughs> in which case it's it's really, really fun. But um, I was going to offer an acquired taste, Ed. <laughs> okay, sure. That's a nice way to put it. Um, for, for anyone within about a quarter mile radius of a banjo, it's a, it's a waking nightmare. And so I, I tend to, to do that, um, more in solitude, but yeah, I play guitar all the time. Um, my, my, uh, two and a half year old daughter is obsessed with instruments, which thrills me. Obviously she's, she, she can really play a ukulele. She can't make chords on it, but she can really strum it and, um, and it's just so fun to sit there she, and try to make her dance with, with guitar songs and whatever bluegrass, if whether you like bluegrass or not, and, um, and it is, it's not for everybody. Um, it's definitely for all kids. Kids love it. For some reason, it just always makes kids dance. And I'm so grateful that you took this time to be on bullseye. It was really nice to get to talk to you. It's always a pleasure, Jesse. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Ed Helms, folks. Coffee and Kareem is streaming now on Netflix. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye is currently being produced out of the homes of myself and the other employees of Maximum Fun Incorporated in and around the Los Angeles area. Here at my house, the most exciting thing that happened this past week was a delivery of hams from Father's Country Hams. Always exciting, but particularly exciting when you're not leaving the house very much. Uh, Thanks to Father's Country Hams of Bremen, Kentucky. Uh, They didn't give them to me for free. I I bought them. I just, you know, I got all the cracklings and ham and bacon and biscuits. And, oh, man, I got to go eat. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Kevin Ferguson. Jesus Ambrosio is our associate producer. We had help from Casey O'Brien and Jordan Cowling at Maximum Fun. Our interstitial music is by Dan Wally, a.k.a. DJW. Our theme song is by The Go Team, thanks to them and their label Memphis Industries for letting us use it. And we have so many interviews in our back catalogs. I talked with Zach Galifianakis about his part in The Hangover. He had a very different perspective on how the movie changed his life. You can listen to that conversation at our website, MaximumFun.org. I also once interviewed Scott Armstrong, who 
helped write The Hangover and The Hangover 2, which if you have not seen The, the Hangover 2, it is, a, it is a, almost like a horror movie. <laughs> it's really intense. I asked him why he did that, too. So you can grab those in your favorite podcast app or at MaximumFun.org. We're also on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. We're at Bullseye on Twitter, so go follow us there. You can search for Bullseye with Jesse Thorne on Facebook. And all the interviews on this show are on our YouTube channel, so you can go grab them, share them there, uh, subscribe there if that's how you uh, prefer to enjoy radio interviews. And I think that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.